Hello and welcome to The Movement. This episode was recorded as part of the Movement Live series on Instagram. The Movement Live is hosted by 776 BC founder and Olympic silver medalist Cameron Mackenzie McCug and Tokyo Olympic gold medalist Lucy Steffen. This week has Rio Olympic gold medalist and London Olympic bronze medalist Will Satch on to discuss his thoughts on what built the foundation of success for his Olympic campaigns. Now over to the show. Uh, welcome, because uh, I mean, I was sort of hoping there for a second, Will, that we'd have a backdrop of some, you know, beautiful snow-capped mountains or icy <laughs> sort of lake in New Zealand. Because um, if anyone wants to get jealous about uh, a lifestyle, go check out Will Satch's Instagram oh, page, geez. and um, I mean. <laughs> And I'll do the proper introduction because I always <laughs> miss this bit. But, um, this is our Wednesday morning uh, chat that we call The Movement Live with Olympic champion Lucy Stephan and Olympic champion Will Satch this morning from GB, who's now residing in New Zealand. And um, as I was just saying, you're, um, you're making a lot of people jealous uh, with your activities. In the, and, and I know you've sort of been going through a lockdown, but that's a pretty different lockdown to what we've been experiencing in, in Melbourne with... Um, because your lockdown includes skiing, um, helicopter rides, bike riding. Um, I want your type of lockdown, but you, well, don't, don't forget to surfing. Surfing, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> just to cover all sort of activities. Um, you, you look like you're coping all right over there, Will. Uh, yeah, it's all right. I think, like anything, um, you know, it can be a bit smoke and mirrors potentially on, on especially on social media, as we all know. Um, but yeah, I can't complain. It's been utterly brilliant. Feeling incredibly lucky, um, and yeah, it's it's awesome. You know, there's a few things that could be a little bit better. Could be was earning a little bit more bucks, um, so I can pay for all these toys. Um, but you know, especially after going through the first the first wave of COVID back home to being over here, it's um, it's a it's a joy. Um, and I'm hearing it back from my mum back home as a teacher. My, my sister's a, on the front line. She's a nurse. Um, yeah, so I, I feel very lucky. At the same time, I kind of feel a bit guilty. Um, but it's not, stopped me. it's not stopped me enjoying myself, that's for sure. Well, I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's like everyone's sort of dealing with their own reality um, in the last 18 months in terms of their bubble and experiences of how you know, they're navigating through this pandemic and... Some people are sort of are still at the front line, as you say, with um, you know, some of your family members who, like, you know, it's been an incredibly tough last 18 months and yeah. it's probably still going to continue for a while yet. But, um, yeah. but uh, I mean, you're, you're sort of obviously, um, yeah, made a big shift over to New Zealand after uh, your rowing career. And we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit sort of further um, yeah, yeah. because I think it's sort of, yeah, really interesting one, and particularly with Lucy on the core too, because um, one of the things we were talking about beforehand is, um, and so, you know, to quickly run through your um, accomplishments or sort of medals, even sort of just, we focus on the Olympic um, campaign. So London um, in the pair and a bronze medal there, which, um, which you know, was a pretty new combination. So, that, so to get up there at a home Olympics and to win a medal, um, let's just start there because I think sort of 
you know, the dream is to get to an Olympic Games for any athlete, but yeah. then the ability to compete at a home Olympics, and, uh, yeah. and I was fortunate enough to be at the London Olympics, and the atmosphere um, was just intense and amazing. What was it like yeah. actually being a you know athlete where you're competing in front of your home crowd? Um, mate, completely surreal. I um, yeah, like I said, we're kind of at a, at a time potentially a bit of a throwaway boat, and you know you look at look at it now. The guy I was with, George, is my best mate. It's going to be my best man when we get back home. Um, it was an unbelievable experience. I kind of, there's a few things I kind of felt like I, you put a lot on the line. There's a few sort of American scholarships that were sort of lined up. Um, I eventually got good at rowing. It took me quite a while, especially from from my background. I was the fat ginger kid who was playing a lot of rugby. Um, but yeah, kind of got into the swing of things once I was about 20. I grew another inch when I was 21. Um, and then the combination worked, because we know pairs are funny boats. Um, yeah. Probably the only boat where you need to do something quite drastically different to make it really go fast. Um, that's what I think, anyway. Um, and to row against, you know, some of your sort of schoolboy heroes was was awesome. You know, um, especially to do it in London. Just the home Olympics is really is something that I'll always remember. And actually, I think potentially was a sort of more feel-good experience than Rio because there wasn't as much pressure, you know, especially leading into Rio, sort of up on that pedestal, especially after those three wins. And it just sort of meant that we were there to be shot down. Whereas at London, it was probably quite unexpected. Um, and oh, we were just two very excited kids. Um, yeah. I think it's the way to sort of look at it. So, so how old were you in London? I think I was 22, 20... 22, 23. Yeah. Um, George was 22. Um, it was funny because so George was sort of like your your pedigree um, public schoolboy. We could then call that there private schoolboy rower. Um, and he'd so he'd won at the junior worlds, won at the under 23s, and I guess I was sort of I think he I was this sort of. Um, what are, what are we drinking here? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't think you'd put your, your bets on me to be the next best thing, especially at the time. Um, and then all of a sudden it clicked, and it was the best feeling ever. Just really, you know what it's like. Just, you find that speed, you find that synergy. Um, and it still brings a smile to my face, like, to this day. You know, yeah. we went from from being sort of 3% behind the whole team and upper altitude under Jürgen's program, you know, 200, 240k weeks up there, after misery. Um, but you, you really build some camaraderie and friendships through the thick and thin. Um, and then to, to actually get it right on the night was something that, you know, I don't believe in luck, but like it's timing, right? Um, and it all just seemed to come together. So, you know, in the heat, we did a 616. Obviously, then the, the Kiwi pair then went and posted a 608. I was like, oh, God. Um, that to race against them in the finals was unbelievable. Yeah, it was really good. And then, you know, the, the best bit about it all is that Rome's done the first week, so you have 11 nights of lawless <laughs> party, which is, especially if it's well, on your home turf, is definitely quite good. Well, don't <laughs> rub nice. it in, because... Thanks for rubbing it in, Will. I really appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was about to say, don't rub it in with Lucy. I thought I'd get that in, sorry, Liz. 
That was the biggest part that you missed this um, this Olympic campaign, Lucy, with Tokyo, is that you got to go over and enjoy the um, success of your on-water performance. But um, as Will said, I mean, with rowing, you are fortunate when you get that first week of competition yeah. and the second week to enjoy it. But, um, but I mean, particularly at the home games. But, I mean, Lucy, you, you got to spend two weeks in a hotel room, so that would have been... Oh, that I was, I was been pretty fun. lucky. <laughs> well, I won't say I was lucky. I got, one, I got one full Olympic experience. I got the, I got the partying in Rio because, obviously, the rowing was crap. And then I got the, the rowing in Tokyo and didn't get the partying. So I've got one full Olympic experience together. Well, yeah, you can put it together and sort of... Yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, actually... And, and going on to the Rio, um, actually, you know what's interesting, I think, is the Olympiad and talking about a successful Olympiad because uh, I was talking to Lucy this morning about comparing and contrasting your sort of experience through the Rio Olympiad and uh, Lucy's through the Tokyo Olympiad because I think you sometimes see, like at Olympic Games, a boat come up and perform really well in that Olympic year and so, you know, they sort of you know peak in that year but... What's definitely harder and then sort of, you know, a real challenge is how do you perform through an Olympiad and stay at the top and then, as you said, you know, you've got a huge amount of pressure as you get to an Olympic Games because you've been at the top and then how do you nail it on the Olympic final day? Um, I mean, I, I think it'd be interesting just to talk to both of you guys as to, you know, the program through the Olympiad, what... You know, what made it successful over four years, or Lucy, five years, but, but um, you know, Will, I mean, in terms of, and, you know, it's, it's an interesting conversation at the moment, too, because there's a bit going on yeah. in, at GB rowing in terms of changes and, you know, changes of yeah. personnel, and, um, but obviously you were part of a hugely successful program, and um, under Jürgen, as you identified, and there's a, a misery sort of part to having to just get through the miles. And, but um, why, why, is it so, why was it so successful? And, and can you identify, can you give us some insight as to a couple yeah, yeah. of things that really worked? I think the um, biggest thing, it's actually the biggest thing I've noticed recently, with, especially with schoolboys. But the difference, there's not a lot of difference between schoolboys and grown adult men. Um, and it's the attention span. So they, these boys have got, I reckon they've got about six seconds before they before they tune out, and that was definitely me, um, and probably why George and I worked quite well. He was sort of the, the brains, and I was just sort of the brawn. Um, but then I think I was again lucky that I was able to row with um, my childhood heroes, you know, Pete Reeds, Andy Triggs Hodge. Like the confidence that they brought into the crews every time I raced with them was huge. And I think there was a lot of times where I'm really over competitive and I know that I'll always overdo it. And I think Lucy's quite similar um, to the point where I put myself in the bin every day. And it was really interesting watching and learning. And then the older I got, um, watching these guys train, you know, George, like a, if we take it right back to 2012, George and I would paddle around and we're trying to, nip around under two minutes the whole time. And it's just not really sustainable. It is for a short period of time. And you can kind of roll on that negative energy about trying to beat, you know, these greats. And we paddle through that. Remember, there's a particular time we paddle through Andy and, and Pete and we'd come in and they'd be like, what are you doing? Like, Chill out. And I, I just want to attack and race everything. And I know that that intensity probably 
helped me in that seat in the eight and potentially being slightly aggressive and wanting to just get the job done and you know it's my way or the highway like let's go boys um but at the same time having a, a bigger boat meant that i was able to you know we were able to mold as as one unit and there's definitely times i'm not saying that's the be all and end all there's definitely times where it's really hard and you know um personalities clash and there were times where you know i'd admitted me and pete really didn't see eye to eye but then we've come out the other end i've only ever won with him um and that's quite a big statement um it just shows how much confidence that he will bring to a crew um and then the likes of having other guys in the boat you know the, the young the unsung heroes like you know for us tall paul the guy who sat at paul bennett he he was spare in 2013 when we won um and then the confidence that jürgen sort of installed in me put me up in the in the hot seat um just probably just to get me out of the way because i wasn't following anyone else um but watching Paul progress was huge as well with Gottschall. So, you know, they were there rowing in a double um, in the spares race. And then the following year, you know, okay, we potentially got a bit of a lane, but, you know, we, they got they got that grace. They got that gold medal at the World Champs, which gave them a bit of confidence. And then that rolls into 2015 and you get the job done again. And then all of a sudden the confidence and the camaraderie build. Um, but like I said earlier, the biggest issue is then trying to do that on the night. It's not like, the Kiwi 8 where, you know, it's that one race, that's all that matters. Obviously, it is all that matters. And that was always etched in the back of my mind, you know, under the Christ Redeemer, in the sun, on the 13th of August, you know, training for that, going for that race. But, oh, the stress of getting it wrong and then looking back at, you know, Tatey's 8, was it in 2000? And, 2000. Uh, 2000. Yeah. yeah, 2000. Yeah. Like, yeah. getting it wrong. Um, this sends shivers up the spine. I think it sort of gave us an edge in a way, but then at the same time, really, really facilitated that. Um, well, you know, like I said, Pete and some of the other guys facilitating that, that confidence in me that no, we can do this. We've done this three times. Um, we're going out there to collect. Um, we're not going out there to win. And it's almost uh, people would look at that as almost like a quite an arrogant um, ethos, um, which. I mean, you could say it was, but you are just going to try and do your best. And then you get into the 2016 season after winning those worlds back to back and we lose, we lose every bloody race. And you're like, you're just banging your head against a brick wall. And I think overall, the biggest thing for me was to trust the process. And it's very easy to sit back and go, oh, Jürgen did this, especially at the moment with GB Rowan, Jürgen did that, Jürgen did this. But actually, at the time, he was the head and the confidence that that brought to the crew was huge because he'd done it time and time again. And the fact that we're running two top boats was, you know, again, installing more confidence and more um, from Madre. So oh, a number of things, but I think the biggest thing is, is trust, um, especially in the bigger boat. Yeah. Lucy, can you relate to a lot of that through your... Yeah, I think most of it. I think what came for us is probably we're a little bit different in the form of, I guess, maybe hopefully us as like the Aussie team, we're at kind of the start of that dominating the sweep or the world, if you will. I think for us, it was what drove us to win gold was the fact that we had girls who... Like, for me, rowing last cycle in the lead-up to Rio, it was like, 
trying to make a finals, trying to like scrape in. It wasn't it wasn't about winning and like there was an array of things that we did really, really differently and I guess you could argue now wrong. But I think for us it was more instead of having those kind of people that were bringing you along for the ride, like your, your Gregory's and your Reeds and, and those people, it was more up to us. And I think what helped us with that was obviously make becoming the centralised program that we did in 20, end of 2016, start of 2017, because we were all there pushing one another. And I guess kind of what Will was saying about going out there side by side and him and George, like trying to take on those kind of top pairs that's what we, when we bought in the centre, that's what started happening is that we could train side by side. We could push one another. We could be there. And it's like, there's a sense of camaraderie that you build together when you're in the, the depths and the pits of training and you're so tired that you're struggling to get out of bed. Like you wake up in the morning and the first thing, your first thought is, I can't wait for bed tonight because you're so tired. But you, you are all there together. So... I think that that was part of probably the really the only difference, but similar thing. It's that confidence of building it together and what we had in the women's four, like there was 10, I think 10 athletes, 10, nine, nine athletes over the span of the cycle that were all had a seat in that boat that added to it. And then obviously we had Westy and Tom, um, Tom and John coaching it. Westy for the three or four years leading in, and then John. So it was it was such a team building into that four. Um, and so similar thing, it was just confidence. It was like if you get it if you if you're going for the Aussie women's four, if you're going for any Aussie women's boat, it was about um, it was about winning. It wasn't just about making the team like it was the cycle before. It was you're in that if you're in an Aussie women's sweet boat, you were there to win a medal. And that was the confidence started- that we built throughout the cycle. I mean, I think, and for both of you in your boats, it sort of, it seems like the confidence came from if you put down your best performance, so if you nailed your performance, then you're more than likely going to win. I mean, like, that's, and I mean, in terms of building confidence around what you're about to, you know, go and race, um, that's the best position you can ever be in because it's all in your hands and the control of, you know, you know that if you put together your best performance, then that's going to get the result. And, um, and I think sort of, you know, if you back that up over year to year, then um, as you say, like Will, it's sort of, it can come across as arrogant, but it's not. It's just confidence in what you've done and your ability to go out and execute on the plan. But can I, can I dive a bit deeper? Because I want to work out, I'm trying to find out some things that might have been the secret source the to sort of the program or sort of, you know, I mean, because, so we had, I was part of a, a good, you know, successful program in um, 2008 at our Olympic campaign. And one of our sessions was a um, two minutes on, one minute off, sub rate, but we was, it was, and it was times five, times three. Um, but we're obsessive about the speed that we were trying to sort of get within those two minute sort of blocks. And I think that was the building blocks to our uh, campaign because, it meant that we were so confident on our mid-race speed because we just knew what the feeling was and we were sort of so well drilled on that two-minute sort of, you know, session that, um, you know, as it came to sort of, you know, racing, it was just like, just find that rhythm, find that rhythm. And, and that was when it sort of just clicked. Well, what's, what, was the, what was the session? What was, can you identify something where I was like, 
that was the session that built sort of our campaign. You on mute, Will? I think. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah, there we yeah, go. Was yeah, was purposely going silent on that? I definitely heard all of that. <laughs> I thought you were um, intentionally going silent on that. No, come on. Yeah, tell us, tell us, tell um, us the secrets. I think it's probably a little bit more boring than the, that. Sounds quite fun, actually. I think a lot of ours was, you know, the weekly half-hour test. Um, again, not fun, but everyone has to go through it. So, for the four and the eight, just just being there in motion, getting it done. Um, week in, week out, trying to get over that 9K marker, uh, rain or shine. And then the same in in the in the eight. I think we do a lot of pair stuff at the start of the season. Um, and obviously, I think the worst day of the year is definitely final trials, as we all know. Um, we're coming up to trials because you're racing some of your best mates. But getting through that mentally is always good, um, even though it's really tough. But I think the, the biggest one I, I felt for boat speed is power strokes. So just breaking the crew into... Mm -hmm into fours and just going out there and just elbow groups like really getting in the pits of it um like coming off and not knowing quite where you are um how much mileage you've done but you've you've again you've it's achieving together um as a whole um and i think that's what i loved about it i remember having an interview especially after um london from a from a journalist and basically saying oh we you know um you're here on your own, like, whereas George is like, oh, he's getting drugs test and he doesn't like weighing in front of people, so. Um, and he was like, oh, wouldn't you have rather been in the single? And I was like, absolutely not. Like, to share this with my best mate is, like, the best feeling in the world. And everyone's a bit different, but for me, it's, like, I think that's why the power stroke I like so much is because you're, you're out there together, especially if there's a, a second date that you can push off, and it's something I'm trying to instill and stall to the, um, the schoolboys at the moment, that, you know, you've, you've got to be able to do it on your own, but then use incentives to get you through sessions too. So having another eight there or, you know, there'd be times where we'd go out in fours and we'd use the eights bungee for power strokes or we'd go out in pairs and we're using the fours bungee for power strokes and he'd still want the same speed. And he knows exactly what's going on because he's done this time and time again. It's just, you know, old rope for him. But for us, it was trying to produce on the worst day. Um, and that would usually be, you know, end of the week after a three-week cycle when you're utterly in the bin. But if you can produce those times on that night, then you know that's what's going to make the boat go fast when you're recovered. Um, but often we, like, I, I've spoken about it before, but, like, often I, would, I wouldn't feel my... I actually felt quite strange as soon as we tapered because we never really did. There wasn't a lot of... or any tapering into some of the World Cups mm -hmm. and... I think they were, that was quite a big stature for us to, to get over the fact that, you know, if we, especially in 2015, to win at Lucerne for us means that we're on fire because we never win in Lucerne. And usually, like, he almost wants us to, I think, I used to think he wants us to lose there and just so then we can go up to altitude and he can put us in the bin the every day and we're really fighting for it. Um, yeah. And I think, actually, if you look back at the margins at the world where we between, you know, first and second. Over, I think it was over three years with the Germans, it was, you know, 0.8 or yeah. whatever it was. <laughs> but the tightest margin was 2015 when supposedly we had our best boat. Um, yeah. And then, you, you know, look back to the Lucerne's that we've won, that was the one that we won. So, I don't know, I think it's power strokes, brilliant. Um, a grueling ergo together, brilliant. 
and if it's set because it's something you can go off. Um, so was the half hour, saved. the half hour session, yeah, half was, hour. That, was that on the ERG? Yeah. And, and was it rate capped or was it just? Yeah, so rate capped at 20 and then just, yeah, get amongst it and. Just lean on it. Know. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're. I'm a, I'm a massive 20, believer 21, on that. You have to do it again. <laughs> I'm a massive believer on the uh, power strokes, and particularly for an eight. Like I think sort of, yeah. um, you know, it's a big, heavy boat, and if you don't connect up well together, it gets really heavy quickly. And I think power strokes are such an awesome session to understand how yeah, you yeah, yeah. drive together. But um, Lucy, it's almost just remembering Lucy. how much you've actually got to put in. Um, yeah, and it's we had that at uh, one of the World Cups we went to in. In Poland, there was a race where I think we were four or five seconds behind the pace, and we turned up like, "What the hell is going on, boys?" And we had a big old chat amongst ourselves before the final, and it's just commitment. Like you've got to put everything in to get that thing out, and if you don't, it's too late. Um, and that's why I found it mesmerising watching. I found it hard to watch the Olympics this this time round. Obviously, like I think that's quite natural. Yeah. Um, but watching it being won by. A, a different point in the race is as people are saying new age but I've, I've never seen that before like um yeah yeah uh lucy the um yeah not to give it well no let's give away your secrets What's, what was the secret session that sort of worked for you guys i don't know if there was one to be honest i think we're very everything we do is it's very repetitious so Obviously, like you do do, you know, your longer T2 rows earlier in the season. But I guess we'll, we're similar. And that was a big thing when the change and the shift in the program this cycle was like the big thing when John came into the centre was like, Taper, he's like, you'll feel fresh the day of your Olympic final and you will not feel fresh for the rest of this campaign over the next four or five years where we spent a lot of time coming in and coming out of taper in the cycle before. And I think that's the thing. It's, you obviously, you know, you lighten off your training a bit leading into race week, but this whole like going into like a mass taper every time you have a competition, it's like you lose so much. You know, that's where your base is built. So if you're constantly coming in and out of, you know, if you're constantly just doing race work leading into racing, then you lose your base and then you have to build it up again after each major event. Um, which if you're doing all the World Cups and trials and nationals, like that's four or five times a year, which is a lot of missing doing basic T2 training. Um, and I think what even adds to that even more, like when we'll go to nationals, we're constantly doing, you know, there might be some mornings where we'll wake up and John will be like, all right, go do a 20K paddle before you race. Because obviously for us, nationals isn't, it's just a bit of fun to row with your club crew. So it's more important that we keep our base going through nationals. Um, and then in terms of sessions, I think like probably, you know, we'll always have our step rates. We're the same in wheel, like earlier in the season, probably not every week, but definitely earlier in the season, especially last year with COVID, we did a lot of 30 minute rate twenties where you're just hanging, hanging and banging and trying to get your scores as best you can at rate 20. And then, um, we'll do like repeat 500s and that's just, it's not 500 max, it's 500 in your mid-race rhythm. And I think for us in our four, that that's what we knew our strength was, was our mid-race rhythm. It was kind of like if we 
put ourselves, like if we come out of the start and if we're half a length down or half a length up, we knew that we'd be okay because of our mid-race rhythm and that was what the 500s were about. That was what the kind of even the step race was about, was finding that rhythm at any rate, at any time, anywhere. Yeah. Actually, just, well, the half hour 9Ks, what are we sitting on to get that? Uh, 39.9. Okay, so half yeah. hour. Rating 20. Okay, have a crack at that, everyone. But um, actually, can we talk about the taper a bit? So we had an email from Tim uh, from the Essendon Rowing Club here in Melbourne. But it's actually a really interesting one to talk about because I think the taper, it's a really, it's a bloody hard one to get right. And it's a hard one to sort of think about in terms of, um, you know, how you freshen up for a race. And when you're an individual, but you're part of a crew, and so, and, and particularly, I suppose, coming into an Olympic or World Champs race week where, you know, you go from all this training load to one race every two or three days, and then the taper becomes, you know, a big thing in terms of how you're managing your training load through that week. But is there any secrets, Will, in terms of, yeah, how you think or approach a taper to get it right? I mean, it just and, and uh, thinking broadly yeah. around sort of not just Olympic standard, but, um, you know, um, people that are rowing at all levels. Um, how, how do you think about a taper? Or don't over I think before, like, I, I didn't even think about it. So you, you just follow, you know, I was just trying to, you know, right at the start when I was following the program, it was almost just trying to survive. And then as soon as the taper came in, we could perform, you know? Whereas you get you get used to that that training load. I think the biggest thing to think about is actually just getting the block training done, and then you can taper. Like I think a lot of what I've noticed, especially over here, it's the, the rowing season six months, so everyone's trying to. You see other schools and clubs are tapering for these races, and you're like, why? I don't really understand why sort of why you're doing it. But then I don't know any different. Um, and it's something that we tried to, you know, I felt that Henry and Malcolm and some of the coaches here did quite well with the boys, but um, oh, I think it's around, is it a week and a half, isn't it? It's especially like just really, really easing off those last two or three days. Um, but like Lucy said, like we'd still, even in, remember being in London, he sent us out with a bungee, like even after the start in one of the races. Uh, and it's... I think you can overthink a lot, and I think a lot of rowers do because usually they're quite academic, unlike me. Um, and it's easy to just, you know, there's so many ways to skin a cat. I don't know the correct, the exact correct way of doing it. I just know that just keep it simple and just, you know, slowly deload. Um, I don't think really there's any other way of doing it. I used to really love ice barfing. I just think it's, well, I think it's because I'm being masochistic and it's not very nice, but it always made me feel quite good afterwards, especially when we were training up altitude. And then I remember Homer, our um, uh, sports physiologist, was like, stop doing that, um, especially in training, because you then miss the, the training load because you, you're kind of recovering more than you know, the program is, is detailed too. Um, but I used to really like ice bath, especially towards towards the end of the end of the season. It used to sort of fire me up a little bit, but I think maybe I'm yeah. strange. Well, it certainly wakes you up. 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Little fresh um, now. Lucy, just like your experience, and, and I must qualify, you know, none of us are sports scientists, and obviously no. there's, a, there's a team around us that sort of help with um, understanding periodization of the program, and, and sometimes I think that's all um, overthought too much, and there's, there's too much sort of, you know, um, input in terms of how to get the athlete to properly taper. I'm, I'm talking from the athlete angle here, how you feel about sort of getting the taper right. Um, have you had any good, bad experiences yeah, through it? Yeah, I think, um, like you said, like we've obviously had amazing support staff and coaches that tell us what to do and we just do it and you kind of hope for the best. And, but I think a lot of it, what comes to it is it's just what's going on between your ears and what's in your head. And you hear plenty of stories of, you know, you'll be coaching or even us as athletes, you'll do like your mid kind of season 2K where you don't taper and you just wake up one morning and you do a 2K and your PB. And you're absolutely, you know, you're absolutely booked. You don't, you can't even imagine how you're going to get through it, but you, but you do it and you PB. And then you might do a 2K two months later when you're feeling fresh, ready to go. And you don't PB and you don't get anywhere near close to your score. So I think it's, you can kind of try and do everything right. You can try and get the taper done. But I think as long as you're not going out and doing like a bit of a story, but I got back to Melbourne on Monday. So I was like, sweet, jumped in the pit, went for like 22K row, haven't rode in like two months. And I like jumped on my fixie, rode to did gym. So I like spent like an hour commuting on the fixie, did gym. And then I came home. I was like, oh, I might do this 5K run. So then I went and did a 5K threshold run. And then I went to go do some threshold stuff yesterday on the ERG and, like, couldn't get through it. And I was like, what the hell's wrong with me? And I called up Ez, like, once again, lucky, have sports scientists, but I called up Ez, our sports scientist. And I was like, Ez, I think I went too hard yesterday. And she's like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Of course you did. That's pretty obvious. So I think <laughs> it's just don't do anything stupid, obviously, leading into racing. Like, you're coming into a big main event. Like, don't go out and do a heap of threshold stuff. But keep your legs ticking over. Keep making sure you're recovering properly. Keep doing things that you know that help. Like, it's not the worst thing to be doing power strokes before you're racing because it helps you with that hang. It helps you with that connection on the boat. But it's like, don't go out and do 16K of power strokes. Do, like, a quarter or a third of what you usually would do kind of thing. Don't, don't you reckon the hardest, one of the hardest things is that you've got all this time. So, like, in yeah. the race week, you know, and I think the, you know, the challenge is to not, well, what do you do with that extra time and, um, and to not sort of get anxious about, okay, I need to be doing, you know, sort of all these different things. It's like, well, just, you're just doing a bit less, but, um, but the hardest yeah. thing to deal with in a taper is that extra time that you get, uh, where usually you're just, you know, you're clocking up K's, miles. Absolutely. So, um, um. Next question I had, because this actually is relevant to both of you too, is you're both stroke seat kind of personalities. Um, and I want to sort of, I mean, I think the, sort of the stroke seat, you know, position in a boat is, even though you did row bow seat at the um, I was going to say, yeah. Just being, Lucy. I'm a stroke seat, but, but you're still, I want to call better than bow seat. Yeah, you're still a stroke seat personality. But, um, but it's, a, it's a unique seat. And, I mean, I think it's always interesting to talk to just your approach to sitting in the stroke seat. I mean, well, you, you know, you're part of a, 
um, an eight that had you know a hugely successful sort of group of um, athletes in there. But um, how do you, how do you think about sitting in the stroke seat and setting up a rhythm, or do you not think it just go off natural feel or like what's is there anything sort of particular that you sort of think about when you sit yourself in stroke seat and trying to set up a rhythm? Yeah, I think ultimately trying not to think about too much and just sort of feel it and do. I think, again, as I said previously, the overthinking thing is, has definitely been an issue of mine in the past. And, you know, again, the confidence thing about being put there. Um, I think the, the hardest one I found was, especially with some of the bigger units some years, in like 2013, to try and get, you know, we've got big Mo who's to sort of set 100 and well, first get down to 108 but you know he's mid-season he's a, he's a big boy um, and then trying to get Hodgie to rate high sometimes in the middle of the boat when he's so stubborn is quite difficult too so I used to I used to find it difficult coming into the line and you can I don't know if you you can sort of see it some of the races but 2013 we'd open up this gap and it'd be like woof and then right at the end it's, it's more for me at the time in that seat to have the discipline to not go higher than whatever I've decided um, yep. because I'll completely overcook it and it will just go to absolute custard. Um, and that happened, I think that sort of happened. It happened a little bit in Rio as well. So we obviously, he opened up that gap and then towards the end, just I'm always a little bit sort of overzealous. So I've, I've got to always try and take the edge off just a little bit. Um, which I think, speaking speaking to like uh, Peter Haining sort of coached me when I started down at Upper Thames in Henley, and we'd always talk about rowing with Macons and that sort of it's not a slip, but you're you're feeling the water rather than driving it in. And I'd always subconsciously and naturally just try and whack everything. Yeah. Um, and I sort of definitely did that towards the end of the race in Rio, but it was done. Um, I remember in, in 2013 really trying to just just take a little bit off um, and just add to take it off at the front and just add all the way through. Just add add to the stroke rather than just beating it. Um, I think uh, yeah. I mean that's that's actually I think that's really good advice to people that want to you know sort of sit in the stroke seat. Is that I've seen it sort of happen where you get a big strong athlete in the stroke seat. And they try to take it all on their shoulders. And ultimately, yeah. like, sometimes it can work, but quite a lot of the times it'll fall apart just because, you know, they're trying to do it all themselves and take the boat sort of, you know, particularly in that wine sort of, you know, yeah. um, up by themselves. And the stroke seat is, yeah, someone that needs to, you know, make sure that it's consistent, but also they're not overcooking themselves because they need to have the, you know, the rhythm and the consistency all the way through, which... Um, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like that's the thing that you were playing with a little bit. Big time, especially working with bigger bigger guys. Like, just need to almost under-rev it a bit. I'd be quite happy with Langers. We used to jump out in a pair and, you know, we'd be up through the, through the roof and it's fine because I could sit behind him or either way around. we just rate, rate, rate. But if you've got guys that, are, you know, especially the bigger brutes that, you know, Paul would be close to 540, like you just need to give him time to do it. Otherwise, if he misses it, I see it. Uh, yeah, you're sort of yeah. wasting your time. So it's almost having that. Um, 
something like a clutch, I like to think of it. But and did you, did you time, love, like I said, doing it? Doing it. Did you yeah. love sitting in the stroke seat? Like, was that? Oh, absolutely. I, I like, remember. Give me, give me the keys. Yeah, give yeah. me the keys. I remember. Um, I remember like yesterday in 2013, we'd gone to Lucerne, and it was. There's nothing about me going to the stroke seat. It was probably actually more that we put some more experienced guys in the middle of the boat, and I wasn't ruining it. But I remember going up to altitude, and Jürgen had re-rigged the boat, and I was like I was in a. He, as soon as he mentioned it in a meeting, I felt like I was in a candy shop. And I was like, yeah. Um, and again, just like again, rowing with my best mates at seven in 2013. You know, after London, it was just. It's bliss. I really, I just enjoyed that, and I, I really enjoy that seat. Lucy, um, interesting one for you because you've you've sat at both ends of the boat in a successful four. Um, are you a bow seater who loves to stroke, or you're just trying to stroke them? Well, what's what's your mentality in terms of sitting in the stroke seat? But also, have you got a preference? Um, short answer, no. I don't think I can, you know, I've won an Olympic gold medal in bow seat. I think for me, it was a massive journey. Like I kind of stroked quite early on in my career and I had a lot of confidence and I was very similar to Will. I had a massive chip on my shoulder. I was like, give me the stroke seat. I know how to do it. I'm hard. I'll take them there. Like, give me a go kind of thing. And I think where I kind of really had to learn and probably like smack bang, smack in my face was 20... 17, we had quite a good crew and I was stroking early on in the season and then our coach Westy put me back in bow seat and we were doing like a bit of a simulation regatta in um, on Cirque and it went really fast when I was in bow seat and Mole Goodman was stroking. And I think for me, that just, it was like a, I want to win. It goes faster with Mole in stroke. Maybe she's a better stroke seat or maybe they need me in bow seat. And, and I was also, I think I took on the role of calling. So it kind of still gave me that voice to, I guess, motivate and call it and be in charge of the crew in that asset that I felt like Stroke Seat had. Um, and obviously while having all this conversation, like every seat is so important. You can have the best Stroke Seat in the world. But if you don't have a good five and, uh, sorry, a six and seven behind you, there's nothing that you can really do. Like I would always say, when you kind of see your eights, you put your your better athletes in for, um, in six and seven because they have the control and they have the ones who can really determine how a crew ends up. Um, and I think, yeah, that was like, I guess for me, in terms of my stroking, I learned a lot. So obviously Mole then went into the eight in 2019 and I was given the keys in 2019. And our first race at the World Cup, I just kind of went to do what I always do, which was, I guess, spin it, get it out, light and bright. I'm quite a small roller, so it was, like, quite zippy. And, yeah, we completely stuffed it, I think, because the big girls, so I had these three really strong big girls behind me, and they couldn't lock on. And it was, like, a very, I guess, tough realisation. Like, we still got a bronze medal, um, which, you know, I probably would have killed for the cycle before. But for us, that was our worst result of the cycle. And after that, I spent a lot of time making sure that I'm setting up a rhythm for the girls behind me. Because if I'm doing that, if I'm not doing that, then there's nothing for them to follow. So that was definitely my biggest thing is, is kind of looking at 
at the time it was Sarah or Pat Wary at Old Odyssey. What do they need? How can I set up the rhythm for them to follow as best they can? Um, and I learned a lot from that and definitely have taken that forward in, you know, obviously I've still done a bit of stroking over the last couple of years, but then same thing, like, when it came to this crew, this um, this year with Annabelle in stroke seat, I looked at it and I was like, of course, why wouldn't we put Annabelle in stroke seat? She's rose incredibly long. She's got amazing connection off the front. And also it was a bit like, well, if I don't sit in bow seat, who else is? Like, I guess I had that bow seat. I have a bit of a bow seat complex. I have a stroke seat complex. So Rose, Rosie Popper always jokes my stroke seat complex is a green monster because it's like this kind of like Hulk aggression. And then my bow seat complex is purple because it's a little bit more like placid but still like a quite a bold colour. So it's like the purple monster and the green monster. Yeah, normal. Normal so things. Two, two monsters on your shoulders. Two monsters. makes sense. Pretty much, you. I like, put me in either end of the boat and I'll find a reason to think that I'm the best person for that seat, regardless <laughs> of whatever seat That's you'll the be. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, so we won't keep you too much longer, um, Will, because I know you've got That's probably a, a mountain to um, ski down later today. But, um, <laughs> it's but uh, yeah, <laughs> it would be now. So you better get up there. But I mean, yeah. <laughs> like the, the transition sort of, well, it's, I mean, you, I was just thinking about the three of us, like we're sort of at sort of different stages. You're probably still in the middle of transitioning. Um, Lucy's going to have another crash, um, not officially, but, well, you are probably, yeah. And I'm well <laughs> through my sort of uh, transitioning into my sort of, um, next part of my life, but, um, but Will, I mean, like going over to New Zealand and, and then sort of, you know, coaching and all that, has that sort of been a really good uh, step to help go from, you know, the athlete, elite athlete sort of lifestyle you've lived for what would have been sort of 10 sort of plus years into, you know, the next phase, which is, I mean, like, I think this is the, the thing which a lot of athletes will be going through at the moment. It's, it's bloody hard to transition from, a structured program, particularly in rowing too, because we're so sort of you know, regimented in, in sort of the program that we're part of. Um, but to go to New Zealand sort of make a huge sort of you know, difference in terms of just change of environment, change of sort of goals and perspective? Yeah, I think so. I think just because it wasn't under my nose, um, obviously growing up in the Thames Valley, it's well, originally it was always rugby, but it was rowing everywhere um, so Caversham being you know what six miles out of Henley I lived about 10 miles out of Henley um, you're always amongst it and you don't really get away with it um, having said that I'm now in Christchurch which is probably the rowing hub of South Island um, but just different just you know just cutting ties get away do something else um, but still it's sort of made me realise how how meaningful and special the sport is to me. I think it's very easy to write it off and be like, oh, I'm done with this. And, you know, the classic athlete mentality, you know, fight or flight. Um, but then the slow, slow sort of burn realisation that it's been awesome. And it, it, it's sort of irrelevant of the rose-tented winds and stuff. It's the stuff you go through, which sounds very philosophical. But um, 
I miss it. I miss certain days of it. I don't miss feeling completely drained and not being able to put my shoelaces on in the morning um, without yeah. being in pain. Um, but at the same time, finding that balance, which we've spoken about, you know, training now, like I'm doing it more for my head rather than vanity or, or trying to win, um, which is a good step. Um, but we're all athletes and I think we'll always be wired up this way. And I think it's definitely understanding that being, you know, considerate towards yourself and understanding that you probably need to go and do some exercise if you train for three times a day for the last 10 years. Otherwise you're not going to feel right. Um, and it's, it's a, I think it's a slow progress. Like I'm obviously, I'm going to find it quite hard to come back home to leave here because it's, it's beautiful and it's peaceful and I'm living on a beach and I can go ski, like I said, I can go and ski and surf in the same day. Um, but the reality is, is that, you know, family are at home and COVID is probably not going to go away. And at heart, I'm a relic. So, you know, I, I really enjoy coaching. I wanted to dip my toe in to see if I liked it and not do it around any schools or clubs in the UK. Um, and I've been lucky enough to be almost scooped up in a system that obviously works really well and I feel like I'm able to add to that which is quite a nice feeling too um, and it's very different being on the other side there's days where the boys are racing and I'm more fired up for them than I ever was myself racing at even maybe not the Olympics but some of the worlds and I remember watching them at a sort of a regional regatta down at Faisal South Island here and Looked at my watch and I was up at 140 beats a minute, just you know, ambling along, cycling next to the race. And I was, I was like a, it was like a proud father moment, and they didn't even win. Um, so it's, I love that feeling too, and it's, it's nice that I feel that because I think I'd be a bit lost if I, if I didn't feel that towards the sports stuff. Um, yeah. But I don't think there's any right or wrong answer, like you know, how you feel after yeah. it, because I don't think any athlete. Any athlete ever finishes thinking, ah, oh, yeah, that was, I'm done. Unless you finish directly after winning. But then you'll always, if you're a competitive athlete, you'll always be like, oh, what if? What if I gave it another go? And potentially that was my, my issue after, after the year. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, and I think that's true, is that there's no textbook for sort of you know transitioning and this is exactly yeah. how you do it it's an individual sort of you know pathway through but i mean i think what you've done is is really well it was a it was a nice step to sort of just change your environment change you yeah. know sort of the uh, the scenery in a nice way and, and do something new and different and stay over there a bit longer because i'm keen to get over there and um oh mate check out the there's, a, so we'll... there's a spare room you name awesome it. okay well, there you go, Lucy. We'll do a we'll do a road trip over to um seven seven six team road trip over to uh, New Zealand just to check New out Zealand. the scene over there. But um, now appreciate the time, Will. Um, really sort of no enjoyed worries. catching up, and I think sort of there were some really great uh, tips there for you know anyone sort of watch or listening in as to um you know just the experiences both of you have been through with your successful campaigns and uh, a bit of. You know, info on the taper and the stroke seat, and but um, enjoy, you know, um, what you're doing over there. It looks like good fun, Cheers, and um, and look forward to sort of staying in touch. But thanks, Lucy, for dialing in again this morning, and um, 
enjoy uh, enjoy the rest of your days. Appreciate Thanks, it. Will. Nice to speak to you. Cheers, cool. guys. Okay. See you guys.